Hi, everyone. I'm Sheikh, and welcome to Humans of AI. Today, we're going to meet Lewis Tunstall, an ML engineer at Hugging Face, where he focuses on LLMs and research. Based in Switzerland, Lewis literally wrote the book on natural language processing and transformers. We'll dive more into that in uh, just a bit. Lewis, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Sheikh. Excited for the chat. <laughs> now, I'll uh, the very first question I, I ask my guest, Lewis, is um, how do you describe the work that you do to a five-year-old? That's a really nice question because I have a two-year-old, actually no, a three-year-old now, and uh, he um, is going to ask me quite soon, <laughs> what do I do all day except for sit in a chair and stare at a screen? If, if, <laughs> if you can translate this to, to, to a three-year-old instead, more power to you. <laughs> all right, I'll take a stab at it. So... Um, Let's see, if I was going to explain this, I would say something like um, uh, right now we have some machines or let's call them artificial intelligences, which are essentially um, ways of trying to sort of um, understand or uh, let's say compress much of the human knowledge in the world um, through a single interface. And uh, these machines, um, we can nowadays talk to them and if they're five years old, they probably have already used ChatGPT. And I would say this is the, the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And uh, part of what my work has been around is um, trying to sort of understand if we can create something similar to ChatGPT using open source tools, libraries, and models. And um, the concept of open source um, is around this idea that um, when we create new technology, um, it typically is better done in a transparent way. So we, we publish all the code, all the data that goes into producing these systems. And um, the hope here is that the community can collectively work together um, to basically build these very capable uh, machines, which then can help you do your, your homework. That would be my, uh, my first shot at it. Sounds like you're going to have a very bright five-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Uh, maybe he'll be a carpenter. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now, uh, uh, taking a step uh, back in time, could you uh, tell us what your career story is and how exactly you landed where you are here at Hugging Face? Yeah, so it's a bit of a convoluted story um, because it Best wasn't ones are. <laughs> it wasn't planned out in any way. So. Um, uh, in fact, I would I'll go even as far back as saying originally when I was younger, I really wanted to be a musician, and I um I spent I see the uh, collection most... of guitars in the back. Exactly, exactly. And so I, when I left when I left high school, I actually didn't go to university. I I spent a few years uh, playing in a band in uh, in Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, during the process of uh, what writing, was the name of the band. A very silly name called uh, Mad Uncle. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And so we were kind of like a a sort of punk slash rock band. And um, uh, at some point, um, one of my favorite sort of bands and inspirations uh, is a band called Muse. And they wrote this uh, book called The Origin, sorry, they wrote an album called The Origin of Symmetry. Um, And I was reading the lyrics and I was like, oh, you know, this, this seems like kind of weird. And it turned out it was based on a physics book um, mm-hmm. called Hyperspace. Huh. And so I read this uh, book from the library. It's like one of those popular science books that uh, physicists write to give the public a sense of, you know, what's going on in, in, in physics. And I got really hooked. It was basically about uh, string theory and extra dimensions and all this kind of weird sort of science fiction yeah. stuff. 
And I said to myself, oh, you know, maybe I'll go to uni now as a hobby and uh, just do a bit of physics on the side while I, I play music. And so I, I did that, but it was a bit of a long journey because I didn't have any like math or science background. And so I had to do like night school for about a year to, to sort of learn all the, the basics. And then I went to uni and uh, did physics um, uh, for a, basically my undergraduate in Tasmania in Australia and then later in another place called Adelaide. And I got really, really addicted to theoretical physics, which was about trying to sort of deeply understand um, how the universe works at its like most, say, fundamental level. And um, when I was finishing my, uh, my PhD in Australia, um, as most students do, you apply for postdocs. And uh, I kind of applied all over the world. And one option was to come to, to Switzerland. And in Australia, you kind of grow up a little bit isolated, so you don't really know your geography very well. <laughs> and at first, I had no idea where Switzerland was. Um, but then um, I had a look at, uh, you know, the, the map and especially on Bern, and it looked like a beautiful city. So I said, all right, let's come here. And um, for a few years of my postdoc, I was um, doing uh, what's called particle physics. So this is essentially trying to model um, the interactions that happen between proton collisions at the Large Hadron Collider mm -hmm. um, at CERN. And uh, a large part of this is like very mathematical, very uh, sort of analytic type, uh, sort of uh, uh, heavy math kind of, say, um, calculations. And um, one of my friends, uh, he, he showed me one day this, uh, this piece of code he had written using TensorFlow, which essentially automated a large chunk of that work. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the kind of common problems particle physicists have to solve is how to detect in the, um, in the collider which particles belong to which type of category. So, you know, was it an electron or a photon that was detected? And then try and use this to figure out what are like the new, um, say, physics beyond the standard model, if that, if that such a thing um, mm -hmm. exists. Yeah. And so this kind of showed me, wow, uh, these things that I've been ignoring for my whole life, like <laughs> neural nets, they actually work. <laughs> and um, maybe I should pay attention uh, to them. And uh, yeah, shortly after that, a friend and I, we, um, we said, let's just teach ourselves uh, like how to do this stuff. And so we joined uh, a cable competition about uh, trying to predict uh, housing prices in Russia. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I got, again, hooked on this idea of teaching neural nets to, to sort of learn these like kind of complex mathematical functions. And um, I reached a point in my postdoc where I could uh, continue down academia or join industry. And at this point, I was thinking the, the chances of having sort of a real world impact are much higher in industry mm -hmm. uh, because most of my, my work in academia probably would take 50 years to, to be uh, <laughs> validated. And so I kind of just did a massive career pivot into, um, into machine learning. And my initial job was at a small startup in, in Bern in Switzerland, mm -hmm. where funnily enough, I did no machine learning. I um, basically did lots of data engineering and, and stream processing. And um, yeah, gradually over time, I, I started to sort of get my hands dirty in uh, more complex projects. And then I think it was around 2018 or so, um, there was a conference in in um, Switzerland, where one of the Transformers authors was giving a talk about this brand new architecture called the Transformer. And uh, again, it was a similar experience to when I was reading this physics book where I saw this talk and I was like, okay, there's something pretty important here because first of all, the auditorium is packed. There's like, you know, <laughs> people stretching out the corridor to listen to um, this guy talk. 
And also um, this kind of idea that you no longer had to train these neural nets from scratch um, to, to get good performance. And so this was, I would say, probably the next big pivot I did where I said, okay, I'm going to now focus really on NLP. And so together with my uh, co-author, Leandro uh, von Berra, mm-hmm. uh, we were working together and we said, let's, let's, you know, let's really dive deep into these transformers. And uh, while we were doing that, we noticed that it was quite hard at the time to get started um, if you were like a practitioner. So we were sort of just, you know, data scientists trying to apply transformers to sort of use cases that weren't just text classification. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of inspired the idea to, to write a book um, where we would try to sort of communicate our experience in trying to make this work in, in the real world. And uh, then we started, we wrote a few chapters and then my um, my wife was like, oh, you should really contact Hugging Face because you keep talking about them and, you know, maybe they're writing a book and it will be super sad if, if you know, you both release a book at the same time. And so we just cold emailed uh, Tom Wolfe yeah. who's one of the co-founders, and I was expecting no chance he, he replies to these two unknown data scientists. And uh, to my surprise, he said, yeah, let's have a chat. And uh, he read a couple of drafts and he was pretty excited about the project. So we joined forces. And this was the start of our collaboration, which, uh, you know, about a year later after that, um, led us to joining Hugging Face. And that's What a of, fun uh, story. <laughs> that's been. Wow. Now, um, if you listen to... Um Hyper music now. Does your interpretation of it change? Um, a little bit, yes. So, so you, you, one of the things you realize, like when you are on one side of either being the expert and not being the expert, is like you realize that um, sometimes explaining complex uh, topics requires use of metaphors or analogies, um, which don't always capture exactly um, the the content. And I've even experienced it myself, like when I was learning how Transformers worked, yeah. I um, was using Jay Alamar's blog posts, which are spectacular um, conceptual explanations of how Transformers work. But then if you look at the code, you're like, well, how do I relate these things together? And so I think there's a kind of learning process that often goes uh, between you know the metaphor kind of conceptual level to the actual uh, technical details. And that's the process that I am also quite passionate about trying to yeah. sort of help others uh, bridge that gap. Wow. Yeah, it seems that the best careers out there are definitely the ones uh, defined by pivots and serendipity, and you definitely have lived that. Yeah, yeah, it was never planned. And it's one of these <laughs> funny things, like sometimes people ask, oh, you know, do you have advice for like, uh, say, young developers, what they should do? And it's really hard because honestly, if I had given myself the same advice, it wouldn't have worked, right? Like, <laughs> It's very, very hard. And so... The, the only thing I, I've taken from all this lesson is that um, I, I suppose being open-minded to change has helped. Yeah. So being, you know, if something comes, like whether it's a new technology or a new idea and being willing to sort of jump into it, that's been really helpful. And the other one that's been super helpful is having uh, friends basically who uh, want to do it with you. So going on these yeah. journeys um, with someone else is, is a lot more fun than, you know, grinding by yourself. Absolutely. Uh, that's great advice right there. Um, as a... As a trained uh, theoretical physicist, uh, using that academic background, um, as you tackle challenges in the fundamental machine learning world, do you think that's uh, influenced your perspective or given you a certain lens versus others? Yeah, it's a bit hard to say. I would. I think 
for example, in my day job, I, I do very little, uh, let's say, mathematics. So I, I spend most of my time debugging distributed training systems. Yeah. Um, and this is like a, a very different kettle of fish. The one thing I think physics helps a lot with is this idea of, um, let's say, first principles thinking or trying to derive things yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time when I start uh, a new project, a large part of this is me just trying to understand where is the sort of foundational layer of like, you know, can I re-implement many of these things uh, for myself? Mm-hmm. And that way you understand how they really work. And then at that point, then you switch into like a, a higher level API. And I think that kind of methodology of trying to derive things for oneself uh, tends to be pretty common amongst physicists and, you know, also many of my computer science uh, in, uh, colleagues at Hugging Face. Um, but I think that might be the the sort of main distinguishing factor. Um, and of course, the math is a bit easier yeah. in machine learning than in in, in physics. Great. <laughs> if, if, if it seems easier, that's definitely a win. Yep, exactly. Got it. Cool, cool. Well, uh, you mentioned the uh, the great story of the of of the book that you wrote, uh, natural language processing with uh, transformers, and I saw the last. <laughs> this is a great promo. Uh, the uh, the uh, last uh, revised edition was in uh, May twenty twenty two. I'm wondering, uh, looking at the past uh, year and a half of explosive change in the field, uh, what parts do you think of that book need um, another? Revision. Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm also quite happy we wrote the book before ChatGPT because <laughs> <laughs> it would have taken us another year to finish it. Yeah. Um, well, you have the yes. OpenAI Dev Day yesterday as yeah. well. It probably requires some, some more. Exactly. Yes. So I think um, when we wrote the book, the, the say common paradigm, I would say around uh, LLMs and in general natural language processing was that uh, if you want to use like a, a, a sort of ready-made um, solution, use an API. So you might have used at that time TextDaVinci from OpenAI, which was probably one of the best proprietary language models. Um, but if you wanted to do something that was like very task-specific, so if you wanted to do named entity recognition or perhaps summarization, you would be better off uh, taking a pre-trained language model and fine-tuning it um, on your own data uh, mm-hmm. for that task. And so uh, the book is, is heavily structured around that paradigm of pre-training of pre-trained models being adapted. Yeah. And I think what's changed with uh, ChatGPT and especially GPT-4 has been the the realization that once language models become sufficiently capable, they're able to do many of these like say task-specific um, uh, sort of uh, let's say uh, task. That's a weird word. Task-specific task. Let's call it uh, many of these like very specific tasks. Um, without necessarily needing to be trained. So this idea of using yep. like prompt engineering or in-context learning, um, it really does work uh, quite well for, for these next generation models. So that's been, I think, one thing that that changed is that now the capability of the proprietary models are very, very impressive. Um, it doesn't mean that you still shouldn't fine-tune uh, models because there are some uh, caveats with using uh, proprietary models where, for example, maybe you have concerns around data privacy, maybe you have concerns around the the model itself changing over time and you yeah. can't really control that. Um, so so that's one element. The, the other side I think that has been quite interesting has been this explosion of interest around alignment of language models. So ChatGPT, as far as we know, was trained using reinforcement learning from human feedback 
where you try to basically collect human annotator labels, which indicate, you know, which response was better or worse uh, for a given prompt. And um, there's now, I would say, at least 10 different algorithms from the academic community about trying to find alternative ways of doing this. Um, And I think this is now the, the extra thing I would include in the book would be how do you kind of push the capability of fine-tuned chat models um, to to their sort of next level? Makes sense. Interesting. You know, in terms of um, uh, just to use the the word uh, explosive uh, again, in terms of growth, um, looking at Hugging Face as a whole, it's a uh, in the past couple of years, it's become a core part of uh, an ML practitioner's experience. And in your two and a half, three years at the company so far during this hyper growth phase, um, what are some of the ways that the company's changed culturally as a response to that growth? Yeah, it's really interesting because I was there when the company was 30 people and now we're, I think, getting close to 200. So in, in just the span of like about, you know, two years, it's, it's really almost uh, tripled, oh, sorry, quadrupled in size. Um, so I, I think what's quite special about Hugging Face is that uh, it's been founded as a remote first company. And so this actually seems, I think, to help maintain the the kind of culture um, in the company that we have. So uh, just to explain a little bit about what it's like to work at Hugging Face, yeah, um, everyone essentially is distributed across the world. So we have people in Europe, in the US, uh, in parts of China, in India. And um, the, the, the kind of thing that brings us together is this, uh, let's say, common mission to try and make... Uh, ML systems as accessible as possible to, to the community. And the way it actually works in practice is we have, let's say, some verticals. So you have the open source vertical, which covers everything from transformers to accelerate to data sets. Um, you have the, say, the monetization vertical, which is covering things like the expert acceleration program or inference endpoints. And then you have, the say, the product uh, part, which is covering the hub and like all the growth elements uh, around the hub. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one is perhaps like, you know, the sort of research side um, of the company, which is what I what I belong to at the moment. And this is around trying to sort of translate some of the academic research or our own internal research into artifacts that are useful to the community. And so within each of these verticals, you typically have uh, a number of small teams um, so usually around two to four people. And uh, these teams are then very autonomous. So we don't really have the concept of managers or like anything like this. It's very, very flat. Um, and uh, the, the way it usually works is these uh, small teams, they, they, they try to decide, okay, what would be the sort of most impactful thing uh, we could do with our resources uh, for the community and then optimize for that. Mm-hmm. So... In, in, in my particular case, I'm, I'm part of this like broader research team um, and I've been focusing on this idea of how do you kind of make this alignment of language models uh, more accessible. And um, a large part of that is around reading papers and testing ideas to see do they actually work in practice and then when they do, um, sharing those results um, with the community. Um, so, sorry, I'll, I'll stop there and then we can... Uh, I was going to say, so just to wrap up on the culture, on the culture question is like, um, so when we started, like when I was joining the company, that the culture is very much about this idea of like autonomy and, uh, optimizing for like the impact you can have on yeah. the community. 
And I think that as we've grown, because we've been able to maintain this idea of like small autonomous teams, it's um, enabled us as a company and as a whole to kind of maintain that, 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 that part of the culture. Um, but also to maintain the kind of helpfulness that we've um, had since the very start. So people will very happily help you on very technical issues, on ethics issues, on policy issues, um, just by asking on Slack. And that's that for me is one of the, the biggest strengths of the company is the, the willingness for people to help each other. That explains the smiling face as the company logo too. Exactly. <laughs> no, oh, oh, one of the things you mentioned uh, Lewis is on the um, uh, model of valuation side. And, and I know one of the things that you've uh, worked on has been um, the uh, valuation on the hub concept. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, uh, since uh, releasing that uh, part of Hugging Face into the world um, about a year and a half ago, what have been some of the surprising ways, if any, that the community has been using that? Yeah, so this, uh, this project started... Um yeah, exactly. About a year and a half ago, and the, the challenge was like, can we find a way to make um, evaluation of transformer models um, on the hub more accessible to um, to the community? And so, uh, if just for context, we have uh, I think just over a hundred or two hundred thousand transformer models on the hub, and we have around a hundred thousand data sets. So, if you think about all the combinations That's of models, overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a very common question that we got from many of our um, enterprise customers was like, okay, I would like to uh, figure out which model I should use for my use case. Can you recommend uh, some models for, that are good for that task? And a lot of the time you had to comb through, you know, these models and you had to use your kind of intuition about, okay, I know that Deberta is good for this and, you know, the GPT models are good for this other task. And the goal was here to sort of centralize that information. And so with evaluation on the hub, we built uh, basically the infrastructure so that uh, users can launch evaluations um, directly from the hub with just a, a few clicks um, through, through a sort of simple application. And I would say that we were possibly a bit too early um, in trying to make this uh, something that is engaging for the community. And the reason I say that is um, the, the usage led to, I think, about maybe 8% of, of models getting evaluated on the hub. So, you know, it's not, it's not zero, but it's not, uh, it's not a huge number. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the big surprises to me was that um, uh, probably about a year later, uh, my colleague, uh, Ed Beeching, he uh, created this open LLM leaderboard. And um, again, it's the same concept. It's like you, you have evaluation, you can submit your language model to be evaluated on, on a set of tasks. And I think because the huge amount of interest um, by the community in figuring out which language model is better, uh, you know, for training, yeah. um, it really exploded. And so this, this, is, uh, this particular application of evaluation is now probably the most viral or one of the most viral um, huh. apps we have on the hub. Um, and it's also one of the most visited pages. Um, so it just shows you that the timing of how you do things is very important. Um, but I think evaluation still remains a pretty big challenge um, for, for the open source community because we know that these other systems like ChatGPT are extremely good. And the question is like when someone says, oh, I've got a new chatbot, which is like, you know, preferred by human annotators as well as ChatGPT, that can be true. But then if you actually talk to ChatGPT, you very quickly go, okay, this, this model is on a different uh, caliber. And so... 
figuring out how to make evaluation uh, kind of work in this scalable way for the next generation of language models, um, yeah. I think will still remain a, a big challenge. I, I, I love the leaderboard concept and I imagine that most execs just have it pinned to their desktops. <laughs> well, well, to be honest, right, like a lot of companies now, they, they ping us, they say, hey, uh, we've got a new model coming. Uh, what would it take to get it evaluated or, you know, uh, yeah. put on the leaderboard? So I think it has become a, a kind of industry standard. Um, even though when we were developing it, we weren't necessarily thinking about uh, that, that that context. And so um, I believe the, the leaderboard team is, is working on adding some new benchmarks soon, which will, um, you know, expand the, the kind of axes that we measure uh, language models on. Yeah. Uh, my suggestion would be to do something with the next World Cup then. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, well, uh, shifting gears just a bit, um, looking at the um, the team that you work with uh, at Hugging Face, um, outside of just raw technical skills and aptitude, uh, what did you say some of the qualities are in your teammates that you look for as you're recruiting researchers and ML engineers? How can someone really stand out at this time? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's something that I think um, is uh, maybe more complex in the presence of a remote company. So a lot of the time, I, I don't actually know the people like face-to-face in yeah. my team. Um, and so the things that I think I personally look for um, in, in my colleagues is um, this kind of, uh, let's say, scrappy um, attitude. So uh, trying to first focus on building something, even if it's not great, and then iterating on that, I think um, is a great quality to have at Hugging Face because the field moves so fast um, that it's it's quite difficult to to adopt the say perfectionist um, attitude that one often finds in, in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side of it, I think, is generally being humble um, and helpful it, uh, are very good personal qualities um, at Hugging Face because. The, the the number of people around me who are much smarter than me is, is quite large, and so <laughs> <laughs> being humble is a good way to to you know make sure that you you, you remind yourself that uh that you have a lot to learn. Um, and then the, the sort of other element I think that is a bit harder to to measure is um how kind of community driven um you are as an individual, and um, hugging face wouldn't exist if we didn't have the open AI community support. And um, a large part of that um, involves building like good relationships um, with members of the community, um, whether it's large companies like Meta or whether it's, uh, you know, individuals, like there's a lot of these new kind of indie research labs that have come up um, around like chat models and uh, working with them um, is both very fulfilling, but also a nice way to, to remind yourself that, you know, what we do is in service of the community. Um, so I think those are like the three kind of qualities um, I look for. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the uh, challenges of just keeping up with the fast-paced nature of the industry there. Um, and you also mentioned um, a few blogs that you really enjoyed, but are there any other main ways that you stay on top of uh, the latest research and industry trends? Any favorite uh, blogs, podcasts, events, things like that? Yeah, it's, it's it's basically an impossible task, right? Like uh, the number of papers that have been written um, yeah. on this topic of especially LLMs is astronomical. Um, I would say I'm quite lucky. Uh, so at Hugging Face, 
the Slack that we use internally for communication essentially acts like a, a filter. So uh, people recommend internally, hey, there's a paper that seems interesting um, for this topic or there's, you know, some event that's happening that looks interesting. And this is often a, a kind of great way to just focus your attention on what seems to be relevant. Um, but outside of that, I think um, the, let me see. So there's a, there's a newsletter by Jack Clark, um, which I, I quite enjoy a lot. He's um, one of the sort of head of policy uh, people at Anthropic and he often um, shares like quite diverse range of um, news items um, spanning policy to technical uh, developments. I, I quite enjoy his newsletter. Um, for podcasts, I um, I recently got addicted to, uh, I think it's to Akesh Patel's uh, uh, podcast, which is um, essentially heavily focused on um, kind of existential risk interviews. So interviewing a lot of the the people who are concerned about, you know, AGI and stuff. And mm -hmm. for me, even though I myself am not really a subscriber to these views, it's been very helpful um, to sort of understand, uh, you know, the perspective of people who are in that in that side of the of the research field and, and what they're, they're they're concerned about. So that podcast has been very useful. And then the other one that I think uh, for me has been uh, quite handy has been um, uh, in a completely different domain, uh, a blog per, a blog uh, called uh, Shtetl Optimized by Scott Aronson. And uh, he's a computer scientist who's uh, extremely fun to read. And he covers everything from, you know, quantum computing to LLMs. So I, I really enjoy learning uh, from that. Awesome, awesome. Those are great recommendations. I'll make sure to include uh, links to those in the show notes. Um, the, the very uh, last question I have for you, Lewis, is... Um, since largely your uh, inspiration started with music, if you were to go back to um, the Muse or any other band, um, what did you say is a song that best characterizes the AI space right now? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, let me think. So... Let me see. I'll try to describe how I think of the space, and then we'll okay. see if we find yeah, the song. So, <laughs> so right now, the 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 field feels extremely frenetic. Um, it's like every week there's a new model uh, landing, typically on the Hugging Face Hub, which is you know the next state of the art, and then people will go wild uh, adapting it for, for chat models and stuff like that. Um, and then at the same time, you have OpenAI um, and Anthropic making, I, I would say, quite significant uh, progress towards improving the capabilities of, of language models. Um, so these are like, you know, on the one hand, you've got the kind of scrappy community indie hacker style, and then you've got the large-scale uh, research developments. Um, so something that captures that, it would probably have to be, I don't know, punk, um, so I don't know, maybe like the offspring, like sex pistols. Yeah. Or like, at least for me, the offspring was like one of the big influences. Yeah. So let's say maybe like, uh, the kids aren't all right. Yeah. That's a song that, that will bring back. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, Lewis, thank you so much for your time and, uh, sharing about your, your world. It's been lovely to connect with you and and learn what your inspiration has been thank you thank you very much shake it was a pleasure to be here this podcast is brought to you by h10 part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design build and manage it 
H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 